Hello everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Hannah White and I'm director of the IFG and a big welcome to everyone who's here in the room with us today and all those joining us online. I'm very pleased to welcome uh, former Prime Minister Liz Truss to speak to us here today. Liz's time in number 10 may have been short but her experience around the cabinet table reached almost a decade. She's been Environment Secretary, Lord Chancellor, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Trade Secretary and Foreign Secretary before she became Prime Minister. And of the current crop of Cabinet Ministers, only Michael Gove and Jeremy Hunt have spent longer around the Cabinet table. But despite her time around the top table, she's become increasingly outspoken about the direction that the UK and the governments in which she served have taken over the last decade or so. And one year on from the publication of her growth plan as Prime Minister, the major economic event now known uh, widely as the mini-budget, Liz is here to set out her vision for the economy and what she thinks the UK needs to do to get back on track. She'll also touch on her reflections from the turmoil of last autumn. She said previously that mistakes were made in the way she went about implementing her plans, something that we at the Institute argued strongly at the time, and this morning we're looking forward to hearing her reflections on that. We'll be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFGTrust, so please do follow and tweet or X along or whatever it is we do these days. Uh, if you're watching online, uh, please send in your questions via Slido. Um, I know some people have already started to do that. We've, I know we'll have lots of questions here in the room, but we'll try to also take one or two from online. So that's all my introductory remarks. Liz, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. And it's great to be here at the Institute for Government today. I'm having a rather more relaxing September than I did last year. And you might well ask, why am I back talking about the same topic? But it's one year ago that I launched my government and our economic policy. And I'm speaking here today not because I want to relive the events of last year. I certainly don't. And it's not because I'm keen to be back in Downing Street. I'm certainly not. It's because one year after saying that economic growth was the central issue for our country. And since then, we've heard a lot of people say that right across the political spectrum. There still is not agreement on what has caused the problems of a lack of economic growth, but also what on earth we're going to do about them. And I think these issues are only getting more urgent. The reality is that over time, we are not bringing in as much money as a country as we're spending. Our debt levels are close to 100% of GDP. We have the highest debt interest payments in the developed world. And according to the Growth Commission, the average person in the UK is now 9,100 pounds worse off than the average person in the United States. And I believe the reason that we have this problem is 25 years of economic consensus that has led to a period of stagnation. And I believe that we need to shatter that economic consensus if we're to avoid worse problems in the future. The fact is the British public know that the consensus isn't working. Lord Ashcroft's poll on the state we're in, released on the 4th of September, revealed that 72% of people in Britain agree that Britain is broken, people are getting poorer, nothing seems to work, we need, we need big changes to the way the country is run, whichever party is in government. A 
And yet, despite the dissatisfaction, the poll also, re also reveals that people don't agree on why we've got the problems and what the fundamental cause of the malaise in which we're living is. Now, there are some people who claim this is a crisis of capitalism, that we've had too much free markets. But quite the opposite is true. The fact is that since Labour was elected in 1997, we have moved towards being a more corporatist social democracy than we were in the, seven, in the 80s and the 90s. State spending now accounts for 46% of GDP, higher than it was in every year in Britain except for 1975, and up from 34.8% in the year 2000. No other European country has seen a, this level of growth in state spending apart from Greece and Spain. There's also a growing burden of regulation. The cost of regulations introduced in 2022 alone is £10 billion, according to the government, and I believe that is an underestimate. In the sectors that are key arteries of the economy, whether it's energy, housing and banking, there is less competition and more government involvement than there was 25 years ago. The government still owns a 40% stake in NatWest. The costs of energy in Britain are twice what they are in the United States, and we have a severe shortage of housing. The cost of welfare and pensions has ballooned by 50% in real terms since the turn of the millennium. And even on an income of £50,000, it's still possible to claim universal credit. Our tax system has become more complicated, with many facing high marginal tax rates when they seek to earn more income. Somebody earning £100,000 with a student loan faces a marginal tax rate of 71%. And we've had cheap money for over a decade, with nearly £900 billion pumped into the system by the Bank of England through quantitative easing in an era of near, near zero interest rates, something that's completely unprecedented in 300 years of UK central banking. So how on earth did we get to this situation? Well, my view is that after the successful monetary policy and supply-side reforms of the 1980s and the winning of the Cold War by the West, we were all optimistic and upbeat about our future, and we took our eye off the ball. Free market economists went off to lucrative jobs in the city, allowing academic institutions and think tanks to be captured by the left. Demand management crept back in, alongside neo-Keynesian-dominated monetary policy. And we conservatives allowed the debate to be framed and led by the left. Whether it was the anti-capitalist arguments of the Occupy movement, whether it was the diversity, wokery policies, or whether it was the statist environmental solutions, we've all got to admit that it's the left that made the running. And we've seen that regardless of which government has been in power. From the energy price cap to the 2050 climate change target to the ESG agenda in companies, there's been a cultural shift across both business and the public sector towards more left-wing policies. And despite the long record of failure of industrial policy, it's back in vogue again. People are talking about it. And at the heart of this, was the basic belief by politicians that the good times would go on forever.
The discussion was about sharing the proceeds of growth. It was about general well-being and happiness rather than GDP. The only question seemed to be how we were going to redistribute the pie, not about growing the pie in the first place. But the problem is that 25 years later, we have seen a growing size and scope of the state. And that growing size and scope of the state has slowed down economic growth itself. Levels of tax and regulation are now too high to generate the amount of economic activity we need to help people's incomes get bigger and to fund government services. And that means our economy is now stagnating. People talk about the productivity puzzle, but it's really not a puzzle. If there's not enough incentive to go out and set up a business, to take risks, to compete, or even work, that's a problem. People are delaying starting a family because housing is too expensive and the cost of bringing up children is so high. Public sector productivity is woeful. And millionaires are voting with their feet. The UK is third after Russia and China for the departure of high net worth individuals. And despite all of the evidence that these incentives have a major impact, there's been a fatalistic consensus that le these levels of growth in Britain are inevitable. And the economic models of the Treasury and the OBR reflect that. They're overly static and short-termist. They underestimate the effect that tax and regulation have on people's behavior. And they tend to focus on one or two, or at most five years, of the effects of policy. I call this approach abacus economics. The failure to factor in the dynamic effects of policy stores up risks and problems for the future. So what we see is parts of the country that need investment don't get it because the emphasis is on saving time or money now rather than creating the conditions for growth in the future. We see energy projects being canceled because the costings are based on yesterday's energy prices, not on future energy security. And the Treasury is always allergic to giving up its levers of control. So it objects to more local decision making and more low tax zones. This pattern of high spending, high tax, and high regulation and low growth isn't just taking place in the United Kingdom. It's taking place across Western Europe and across the United States, particularly the coastal states. And when we look at the counterexamples of high growth in places like Poland, the Baltic states, or Florida and Texas, they're largely places with low regulation and low taxes. In Poland, corporation tax is 19%, and income taxes are extremely flat. And yet, despite all this evidence, the global left want to double down on this strategy of statism. In fact, they appear to be meeting at the moment in Canada. That is what Bidenomics is. It's about injecting more top-down subsidies, increasing debt, and trying to reduce competition by leveling up taxes across the West more regulation through the Environment Protection Agency, amongst others. And to fund this, federal spending is at 40% more than pre-COVID levels. And it's set to go up even more this year. 
Soon the United States will be spending more money financing its debt than it spends on its entire defense budget. And Wall Street has just clocked onto this. Just recently, they downgraded US debt, which is meant to be the safest in the world. And despite the fact that it's very clear that the West can't go on borrowing forever, the Labour Party have said that they want to copy and paste Biden's policies onto the UK statute book. They're calling their version of Biden's policies the Green Prosperity Plan. It's not a green prosperity plan, it's a green degrowth plan. And it's just a new name for the failed subsidies and high taxes of the past. Real economic security would mean incentives so oil and gas producers want to come to the North Sea and so people want to invest in the United Kingdom. And above all, real security means controlling public spending. Now, last autumn, I sought to take on this consensus and try and get the British economy on a better trajectory through a three-pronged approach of targeted tax freezes and reductions, supply-side reform, and holding down public spending. It was clear that interest rates were going to go up, and they would go up further. We'd had artificially low rates for too long, and they were rising across the world. Therefore, in order to dampen inflation and stave off a recession, the only tool we had at our disposal was doing all we could to fix the supply side of the economy and increase our productive capacity. As far as I was concerned, this was an urgent task. And the growth plan, which subsequently became known as the mini-budget, sought to do this through targeted tax cuts, supply side reform, and spending restraint. I felt we needed to reform our tax system with measures to make it more business friendly and to make the UK a more attractive place to invest. We needed to reverse the impending hike in corporation tax. We needed to cut the top rate of income tax to show that Britain was open for talent. Reforming IR35 would cut red tape for small businesses and a return to VAT-free shopping would make our cities more attractive. Independent calculations suggested that cutting the higher rate of income tax and the tourist tax would have increased rather than decreased revenues within five years. Those are calculations by the CEBR. So when people describe my policies as unfunded tax cuts, that is not an accurate description. In fact, quite the opposite of being unfunded, these tax cuts could have increased funding for our public services. The CEBR also say that the cost of freezing corporation tax was much less than the Treasury suggested. Their costing of the measures was 25 billion over five years, not 45 billion. And regrettably, the static models used by the OBR failed to acknowledge this. The second part of the plan was supply-side reform, with some of the biggest constraints to growth in the UK economy being in energy, housing, and the labor market. On energy, there was a risk of household bills going up to 6,000 pounds due to decades of short-termist energy policy that had failed to ensure our security. That's why we introduced the energy price guarantee, while we worked to open up fracking and the North Sea to make the UK energy independent again, including by abolishing the windfall tax. Again, due to static costing, the cost of this was vastly overestimated. 
it will actually cost £27 billion, less than half the £55 billion forecast by the OBR in the autumn of 2022. On planning, we instituted Canary Wharf-style investment zones with planning freedoms and tax breaks for a decade that would help drive new jobs and opportunities in left-behind areas. And we sought to make property ownership a reality for young people again by reducing costs on developing that get passed on to renters and buyers, whether it be through planning reform, reduced regulation, or speeding up planning decision. We also wanted to cut red tape on childcare to make it more affordable for families. The third part of the plan was about public spending restraint. Now, we were deliberately careful about discussing public spending, given the very difficult politics of it. And what I tried to do as Prime Minister was navigate between the economic reality and what realistically we could get support for in Parliament. Having been Chief Secretary, I know it's very difficult to cut spending in year, and it's often counterproductive. In the past, we've cut things like capital, and then it's come back to bite us later. Therefore, what I tried to do was change the trajectory of spending by holding spending down. Now, in an inflationary environment, not reopening the spending review represents a tough approach. I also wanted, as was widely publicised at the time, to increase welfare benefits by wages, not prices. These two measures would have meant that compared to what we are spending now, we would have saved 35.5 billion over two years, 18.4 billion in 2023-24, and 17 billion in 24-25. But even these modest savings did not command the support of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And it's a very serious issue for us who want to see smaller government that currently making significant changes to spending simply doesn't have enough political support. So those were the three key parts of the plan. Targeted tax reductions, supply-side reform, and public spending restraint. And of course, the growth plan was a starting point, a signal of direction. Further changes were needed, given the scale of the challenge we face. CBR analysis at the time suggests that if those policies had been kept in place, GDP growth would be 2% higher than otherwise by 2030, and investment would have been up 10% and could have been even stronger. These impacts were even greater in the long term. The 20-year GDP impact is normally three to four times bigger. And I think we can see from the evidence on the ground the impact the policies would have had. Investment would not have faltered in the North Sea were it not for the windfall tax. We would have got moving on fracking and lower energy bills would be on the horizon. A more competitive rate of corporation tax would have persuaded the likes of AstraZeneca to locate in the UK. And there would have been more duty-free shoppers and a boom in the number of self-employed. The policies were welcomed by business groups and voters like them as well. And since last year, virtually all of the policies in the mini-budget have been called for. 38 councils want to proceed with full-fat investment zones. City firms are demanding more freedom to invest. Companies have called for lower corporation tax. There's an entire campaign in the Daily Mail for tax-free shopping. 
and the self-employed want IR35 reforms. So why didn't it happen? Why didn't these policies, which people wanted and would have resulted in economic growth, not happen? Well, the reality is it was the reaction. So although I did get rid of the health and social care levy, a new tax which would have no doubt expanded over time, unfortunately, most of the policies weren't implemented. And they weren't implemented because there was a reaction from the political and economic establishment which fed into the markets, markets that were already destabilised by the Bank of England's slowness to hike interest rates and the failure to regulate LDIs. And I was effectively forced into a policy reversal under threat of a UK meltdown. Now, some people say we were in too much of a rush. And it's certainly true that I didn't just try to fatten the pig on market day. I tried to rear the pig, fatten the pig, and slaughter the pig on market day. I confess to that. But the reason we were in a rush is because voters had voted for change. They voted for change in 2016, and they voted for change again in 2019. And I wanted to deliver that change, and I knew we had limited time. I knew with the level of resistance and the lack of preparation that things weren't going to be perfect. However, given the situation the UK was in, it was important to take action and not to do nothing, because I went into politics to get things done, not to do public relations. And to all the people who said that if we'd spent more time rolling the pitch or we'd done things in a different way or we'd delayed things, we would have been able to deliver our programme. I asked them to look at what has happened since. By October the 7th, the OBR were already leaking their calculations that there was a £70 billion hole in the budget. These numbers, of course, subsequently proved wrong, but the leak would have made delivery of the corporation tax freeze untenable. And since last year, no major supply-side reforms or tax cuts have been allowed to happen, whether it's on financial services, childcare, planning, or on the environment. In fact, 150 Conservative MPs have written to the Prime Minister saying there should be no change in net zero legislation. So although there's no doubt that the communication could have been better and the operation better honed, I think we all have to acknowledge in the room that this wasn't just a process problem. There was unquestionably a reaction to the policies themselves. And the fact is that supply-side economics and a belief that the size of the state needs to be reduced are ideas that no longer command widespread support and understanding. The anti-growth coalition is now a powerful force, comprising the economic and political elite, corporatists, part of the media, and even a section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. The policies I advocate simply are not fashionable on the London dinner party circuit. In fact, what is interesting is when you look at the polling evidence, the people who want change and support these policies are less likely to be comfortably off in London and the South East. The Lord Ashcroft poll shows very clearly those who want to see lower taxes and smaller government and who are tougher on welfare tend to live in less affluent areas. Many of those are people who started voting Conservative 
in 2019. And in addition to that, there are some of the policies I advocate that just don't have very much public support at all, such as cutting the tax, top tax rate, building more homes, of getting or getting rid of process when building infrastructure projects. But frankly, we need to find a way of doing these things. Otherwise, we're not going to get the prosperity and the opportunity that people want. And we can see the policies I advocate working right now in places like Texas, Florida, and the Czech Republic. Even Germany is now cutting corporate taxes and reducing regulation. If the situation was urgent last year, it's even more urgent now. The UK is in a serious and precarious position, and there is a real risk of a downward spiral. The national debt was 525 billion in 2005. By 2022, it had quintupled to 2.5 trillion, and it's set to drop 3 trillion within three to four years. I believe we can get out of this, but the only way to get out of the debt spiral is to get a grip on public spending while implementing policies to grow the economy. I urge the government to be bold and to set out a clear vision of how the UK can get to sustained 3% annual growth within a decade. This should set out a clear 10-year trajectory for reducing the size of the state as a proportion of our economy through a combination of growth and spending control. We should aim to get that ratio we achieved at the turn of the millennium before Blair and Brown turned on the spending tax and excess regulation made us uncompetitive. And we need to give people hope that things can get better. We need to spell out what 3% growth would mean in terms of improved standard of living and opportunities for an average family. A new car, a holiday abroad, more support for your children. And ministers need to go out and explain the why as well as the how. We need to make the case for free market economics and admit the state has got too big, partly as a result of excess spending during COVID. We need to show an enterprise economy is good for everyone. Conservatives can't just assume people have read Milton Friedman. We need to spell out our philosophy. And that would contrast with Labour's lack of ideas and force them to defend the stale economic consensus started under Blair and Brown. Now, in order to deliver this, there's going to be big change required. We need a new supply-side revolution. The supply-side revolution in the 1980s was all about taking on unproductive industry and the unions, which held the whip hand over the elected government of today, of the day. The supply-side revolution now has to take on the burden of regulation and an over-large, over-powerful bureaucracy, which has the whip hand over the elected government. This supply-side revolution has to encompass changes to tax, regulation, and the size of the state. The government needs to take on the OBR over the impact of tax policy. And we need to see much more sophisticated levels of analysis from the Treasury about long-term economic growth. This needs a wide variety of thinkers, including monetarists and supply-siders. We can't afford to be uncompetitive internationally. We need corporation tax back at 19%. 
and we should also refuse to implement the OECD minimum tax agreement, which I previously labelled a cartel of complacency. It won't be implemented in the US, and even if it was, it would make the entire West uncompetitive. We also need to reduce marginal tax rates to make it worthwhile to work at every income level. Further changes like abolishing the tourist tax, abolishing the windfall tax, and sorting out IR35 need to be made. We also need to get a grip on the ballooning welfare and pensions bill. This means slowing the rates of increase to benefits and tougher work requirements. It means raising the retirement age further. And as a party, we have to deal with the difficult issue of the increasing costs of pensions. The current trajectory is not sustainable. We need more competition and less corporatism in key sectors of the economy, like energy and finance. I favour a single utilities regulator to get rid of the balkanisation and capture that we've seen under organisations like Ofwat and Ofgem. The government needs to divest its shares in banks and withdraw from micromanagement in sectors like transport. And in the energy sector, we need to get on with fracking and abolish the windfall tax. In the housing market, there should be tax breaks in return for having new developments and homes in your area, a much simpler zoning process and speeded up infrastructure projects. That's what the original investment zones I proposed were about. We should diverge properly from the EU so we can increase competitiveness in areas like financial services. And finally, we should, as many other Western countries are already doing, delay implementing net zero commitments, such as the ban on new petrol and diesel vehicles from 2030. Other environmental regulations, which are hiking the cost of living, like enforcing the replacement of gas and oil boilers, should also be abandoned. Ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, there is a growing consensus that we need to grow. But although people will the ends, they don't necessarily will the means. In order to grow, we need to change. And that starts with acknowledging that we have a problem. It means abandoning the stale economic consensus. It means politicians doing the right thing, even if it's unpopular. This will not be easy, but it will be worth doing. With determination to turn things around, we can make Britain grow again. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. I'm going to put some questions to Liz myself, and then I'll come to the floor. So do you have your questions ready? And there's plenty coming in online. Um, unsurprisingly, I want to use my prerogative as chair to ask you uh, about some core IFG uh, themes. I know that there'll be plenty of economic uh, discussion coming from the audience. Um, as I know you know, the IFG's mission is to uh, think about how government can work most effectively, whatever government's in power and whatever their policies are that they're pursuing. So it's really interesting for me to hear your reflections on uh, how you went about trying to bring in your policies uh, last year. I think the, the, the fact of your reflections on um, how fast you felt you had to move and the impact that that had um, is, is good evidence to, to illustrate something that the IFG often talks about, which is the way, way in which policy is made um, is important, is determinative of its success. I did want to pick up on um, one of uh, your economic themes for today, which is the, the, what you've said about spending cuts, which was... Um, very interesting and fleshed out, really, um, some of what you've been able to say before in that space. 
Um, and I had a look at the Ashcroft poll that you cited in your speech, which also said, um, also found that 3% of people, 3% of 2019 Conservative voters as well, thought that public services had got better over the last 10 years. And Ashcroft himself said, few voters conclude that the answer is for the state to do less. What even less, as a woman in Walsall put it. Um, so even with the government's extra funding, it's on track to enter the next election with most public services performing worse than on the eve of the pandemic. Under your plans, as you've set out that you were planning to bring in today, um, performance would presumably have been even worse. So what would, be, what would have been your plan to improve public services? Well, this, is, this is what I was getting at when I was talking about the time horizon that the Treasury in particular look at projects over, and it's a big problem. So, for example, the government spends huge amounts on housing through housing benefit, through MHCLG subsidising housing, because housing in this country is so expensive. Now, if we had proper reform to the planning system that allowed many more houses to be built, the price of housing goes down, and that saves money in the DWP budget and the MHCLG budget. But that takes time. And with very short-term uh, economic analysis, and also, and I, I made this point about dynamic analysis, the Treasury stroke OBR is not good at saying, if we did this planning reform, this is how much money it would free up in the economy. It becomes very hard to advocate those policies in the short term. So what I'm this is why I'm talking about laying out a 10-year program to say, here are the changes we're going to make to housing and planning so that we can build a million homes you know, next to stations in the London Greenbelt, which is perfectly possible. And therefore, this will save us this much money in DWP and this much money in MHCLG. I mean, what the public want is better services and cheaper housing and cheaper childcare and lower energy bills. I don't think most people really care exactly how it's delivered or by whom. What they want is the outcome. And the system that we have at the moment, and I also made this point in the speech, where a lot of power now lies in the hands of officials rather than government ministers. It's become very balkanized. It's just difficult to get those kind of things done that I believe is what the public actually want when they give those types of responses in the Lord Ashcroft survey. But, but you are right, it was very difficult, given the election timetable, to get those things done ahead of 2024, which is why what I, what I had wanted to do before the election is try and spell out that trajectory, difficult though it was. And given, but given that shortness of time, given I think we've got 7.7 .7 million people on an NHS waiting list, how are you going to persuade people that your reforms were going to make enough of a difference to get them to vote for you by that next election? Look, I think, I think there are very, very serious issues with the NHS and other public services. And I said this during the leadership election campaign last year. Frankly, too much power has been centralised and we don't allow local GP surgeries, uh, local pharmacies to make enough decisions. So I wanted to push more power down to ground. I don't think the problem in the NHS is lack of money. I think it's the way the system works. But of course, 
I'm not pretending you can build Rome in a day and we would have sorted out the NHS in two years. Obviously, that was not possible. But what I had hoped is to be able to set out a long-term trajectory. I think, by the way, it's inevitable that whatever kind of health system you have, it is going to cost a significant amount of money. I think the real area where savings can be made is actually in the work and pensions budget and on things like housing. By making housing more affordable across Britain, you're going to save a lot of money in the government budget as well. Okay, I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, questions that people want to, to dig into on that. I want to move on to uh, the question of institutions, and you've just made the mm. point again um, about how you feel that um, there's, there's too much bureaucracy which is constraining what elected politicians want, want to do. I mean, I think if we're honest, the institutions that we have in this country have all been set up by politicians deliberately to constrain politicians. If you think about why George Osborne set up the OBR, it was to give credibility to the government's fiscal policy. So taking your argument that, that, that these institutions become too powerful, how much are you arguing there shouldn't be constraint on politicians? Or how, where would you draw that line? So clearly there are some, say for example, economic regulation. You know, I do think you need independent institutions to do that. You, know, you don't want ministers making decisions on competition cases or you know, planning disputes and those types of things. But I think what has happened over the last 30 or 40 years is more power has gone to quangos. And you're absolutely right, politicians have done that, partly because they thought, well, we don't want to take the blame for this difficult decision. We're going to pass the power over to this quango over there. But what actually happens is politicians get the blame anyway. But you have less power over what those institutions do. So I think we're now in a position where politicians have responsibility without power. And that's a problem. And it's a problem for the ability to attract a new generation of politicians. Uh, because you know, it is a job where you get quite a lot of flack. And why, why, why take the flack if you're not actually able to affect the change that you want to affect? And I think. That is a very serious problem. I think we have a governance problem in this country about the way institutions and politics work that so we do need to sort out. And so thinking about um, you know, imagining yourself in opposition, would you be sanguine about the idea of having weaker institutions, having less constraint on, on politicians, you know, imagining, for example, a John McDonnell Treasury making spending decisions? Well, just this point about weak weak institutions. The, what we have in Britain is balkanized institutions. So we've got lots of institutions that argue and compete with each other. So any local MP who's had to deal with the Environment Agency and Natural England and see them passing the buck from one to the other knows that we don't have an institutional setup that works particularly well. And it just makes hard for any decision to get made. So it's not like we've got strong institutions making decisions, what we have is inertia as a result of the institutional setup we have. But fundamentally, I am a Democrat. Yes, I do believe that if the British people elected John McDonnell as their prime minister, which I don't think they will do, he should be able to deliver his manifesto as he's laid out. Yes. 
And you talk about bureaucrats having this sort of having a whip hand over, over politicians. Can you, um, I mean, I think the, it seems at least on the outside that the evidence is that last autumn, the Treasury delivered the mini budget that you wished to put you know, to Parliament. Can you give us any examples of times throughout your career when civil servants have stopped you doing things that you wanted to do? I, I'm writing a book about this at the moment, which is out in April, which will go through department by department and uh, point, to, uh, point to exactly uh, what happened. And it's, it's, never as, it's never as clear as somebody's been stopped from doing this. There are just, you know, there's lots of warnings and back covering and... You know, there's there's different level of enthusiasm for delivering a policy depending what that policy is. So if it's anything to do with climate change, officials are enthusiastic and rush to get out papers. If it's something about doing a deal with Rwanda, there's less enthusiasm. So these things are not necessarily black and white. And um, I'm going to say this because there's some former civil servants I've worked with in the audience. Lots of people in the civil service are brilliant at what they do. I think the problem is a system problem rather than a people problem. But certainly as a politician, trying to deliver what I believe people had voted for, there is a lot of institutional bureaucracy in the way. And even during the, the leadership election campaign, and maybe this did not make me popular uh, with the OBR and the Bank of England, I pointed out that there was an orthodoxy in Britain about economic policy. And I tried to challenge that orthodoxy, and I didn't find you know, a massive level of support, frankly, from those institutions. You'd be pleased to know that because of that, the IFG has launched an entire project on treasury orthodoxy, and one of the authors of it is in the audience, so we'll uh, to talk to you further about that. Trying to work out exactly that. What's the reality of it, um, and what impact does it have? Um, Finally, I just want to put one question to you about short-termism in government, which is a theme that the IFG uh, thinks and talks a lot about and definitely agrees is a problem. You talked about risks stored up for the future. Um, I just wanted, very simply, to ask how you reconcile that risk with also advocating for um, stopping green, uh, green policies, um, which is an area in which the UK has deliberately put in place institutions to try to help ourselves think long-term, but you're arguing to row back on some of that. Well, so my view is we should be prioritising the struggle for freedom and democracy. And I fear that some of the way we're implementing the climate change agenda and our net zero targets is actually making us less competitive vis-a-vis -vis China who are not following, uh, you know, don't have net zero 2050, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a wider debate to be had about the cost of implementing the climate change agenda, the way in which it's being done, and whether or not there is genuine international agreement uh, on, on dealing with the issue. So I don't think that has been properly fleshed out and debated. I think it's been institutionalized before it actually has democratic consent. Okay. Thank you very much. Right, we go to some questions from the floor now. Uh, there will be a raving mic. Please, could you say what organisation you're from uh, so that we know? Um, and uh, I will try and repeat questions, so please try and make them repeatable. 
Um, if anyone's in the adjo adjoining room and would like to come in and ask a question, please uh, just come and stand at the door. And as I say, I'll try and take some online questions too. Um, can we go to Faisal there? Take them in groups of three. If that's We're just taking another couple of questions, I think, at the same time. Um, right at the back corner. Back, back corner, the lady there. Thank you, Lucy Fisher from the Financial Times. Um, firstly, I'd like to ask uh, for your response to Mark Carney, who said that instead of delivering the Brexiteer dream of Singapore on Thames, your administration delivered Argentina on the Channel. Uh, and secondly, when you talk about the anti-growth coalition um, spreading to part of the uh, Conservative Parliamentary Party, are you talking about Rishi Sunak? And turning to the right of the Conservative Party, would you like to hear your colleagues on the right be more vocal? And do you consider yourself to have a convening role for the right of the party in future? Thank you. Okay, we'll take one more. Um, this lady here on the aisle. Thank you. Ali Fortesky, Sky News. Um, for all the specifics that you talk about today, how things could have been done differently, do you accept that being in charge is about credibility and you faced a credibility crisis when you were in charge? You put the credibility of UK economic policy into question. Given how passionate you are about the growth cause, do you worry that you personally set that cause back? Okay, thank you. So, the role of the, do you regret not taking up the OBR's offer? What do you say to the families who's, who's, where your policies had an effect on them? Argentina on the channel. Um, uh, the, do you see yourself as having a convening role now? Um, and uh, how do you feel about this question of credibility? So, so on, the, on the OBR... You know, there were lots of announcements made during COVID on furlough that had no OBR forecast. They involved greater fiscal expenditure than the mini-budget. So I think it's interesting that media organisations choose to target the mini-budget as not having an OBR forecast, but don't mention when it's about spending. And I do think that reveals a mindset which is spending is good, and you know, we'll always be relaxed about that, but cutting taxes is somehow a sort of a countercultural thing to do. And I think that's reflected in the media. I think it's reflected in the polity more broadly. So there was no reason we had to do an OBR forecast. The OBR officially forecast twice a year around major fiscal events. The plan was to do a fiscal event later in the autumn, which would also have the spending plans in it. But what we needed to do, because the energy situation was so desperate, and we also wanted to reverse the national insurance um, 
rise and send a signal to companies about corporation tax, which we had a very short lead time on. That's why we did the mini budget when we did. But as I've said, it was no bigger than those other fiscal events that had no OBR forecast. So we didn't think it was an issue not to have an OBR forecast. The OBR should be there to present the entire spending plans in the round. You know, and on this issue of what happened as a result of the mini budget, I mean, another point I would make is I don't think organizations like the BBC did a brilliant job of actually analyzing the LDI crisis and what, what happened there. I don't think there was an effective critique of the Bank of England. And it really goes back to this point about institutions and politicians ending up having all of the responsibility, but not necessarily the power. And I don't think the media, who seem to absolutely love go gossip about politics, are particularly great at analysing the role of institutions and what they do. And you notice if ever there's a, um, an official from one of these organisations, they get a much easier ride in a BBC interview than a politician would. So, you know, I'll wait to see that happen, uh, Faisal. And you know, as I said in my speech, interest rates were going to go up anyway. I think the real failure was not to tell people years and years ago that these interest rates were artificially low. That was the problem. We gave people an expectation that cheap money would go on forever. And then when the interest rates went up, there was a problem. But you know, this really leads me nicely on to Mark Carney. And uh, you know, I talked about the 25-year economic consensus. Well, part of that has been the central banks. And I do think they have played an important role in pumping the system full of money, keeping interest rates artificially low, essentially enabling this excessive government spending to take place. And I'm afraid there's quite a lot of finger pointing going on from people like Mark Carney because they don't want to admit their culpability or the culpability of their central banking uh, associates in this. And I again think of course, politicians should be held accountable and responsible for what we do. But when there are people with significant power, you know, I don't feel that the same questions are necessarily asked about them. And um, you know, Mark Carney is part of the 25-year economic consensus that has led to low growth across the Western world. And you know, no doubt he's defensive about that. Uh, on the subject of, um, M it was Lucy's question, wasn't it, about um, MPs. I think there are different, and this is why I highlighted the 150 Conservative MPs that have wrote, written to the Prime Minister on the subject of not wanting to change climate change regulation. Now, I believe the way we are implementing those climate change regulations is adding to the cost of living. And if there's anything we should be doing at the moment, it's reducing costs for households. Now, I'm an unashamed supporter of fracking because I know that energy prices in the US are half what they are in the UK because they fully exploited their shale reserves. And if we did the same in the UK, we'd be able to have much cheaper energy and that would reduce the pressure on households. It would help make our businesses more competitive. And that is not happening because of a very fixed view of how we deliver our climate change, um, how we deliver our climate change targets. So 
this is an issue that the Conservative Parliamentary Party doesn't agree on. But then that's the, that's the fundamental problem. There are people like me who think we should focus on getting growth going and improving the cost of living for people around the country. That's certainly what I hear on the doorstep from my constituents about what they're bothered about. But others do not agree with that. And that, that is why I'm making the speech today, because I want to convince uh, my party colleagues uh, of that point. I mean, on, on credibility, uh, without wishing to sort of bang on about the same, the, the same points I've been making, it's very difficult if the government of the day has an economic policy that clearly leading economic institutions in the UK and indeed internationally don't necessarily agree with. And you know, during the, the time of the mini-budget, the mini-budget was attacked by the IMF on inequality grounds. It was attacked by President Biden. And it was also uh, not wholly supported, I think it's fair to say, by various UK institutions. So that is difficult, of course, for international credibility. But I had a choice, and um, the Chancellor had a choice. We either tried to do something to fix the problem, or we went along with the orthodoxy and did nothing. That was the choice facing us, and I don't regret the choice I made. And if people say, well, you've put the case back for free markets, what I think I have been able to do, and I'm going to be saying more about this in my book, uh, which is coming out in April. Uh, I think you can already uh, pre-order it. But I'll, be saying, uh, I'll be saying more about this in my book, is that you know, this has given me a real insight into why it's so difficult for governments to deliver you know, a small estate or tax cuts. You know, it's not just a problem that there isn't enough political agreement we actually have real institutional issues with delivering these things. And that is what I'm going to be exploring further. OK, I'll take another round from the room. Um, can we go to uh, Kitty on the aisle just here in front of you, the lady there? And then we'll go to the um, Kitty Donaldson from um, You, In your speech, you've blamed a host of people for the problems that uh, you encountered in government. Just to get back to Faisal's question, is there no sense of humility or apology you want to make to British people whose mortgage rates have gone up? Secondly, will you do Rishi Sunak a political favour and withdraw your honours resignation list? So just on, on this point about interest rates and mortgage rates, the point I made earlier, Kitty, is that those rates were going up anyway. I think the political failure was to tell people that the rates have been artificially too low too long. And in fact, the rates have gone higher since the mini-budget than they were during the time of the mini-budget. And this has not been a point that's been reflected by the media at all. I mean, I admit that the communication wasn't as good as I would want it to be. I mean, we were in a, a fairly unusual situation of a leadership election, a period of a hiatus, very sadly, the late Queen died, so there were difficult circumstances. But of course, you know, I would have w wished things to turn out differently. But, but what I tend to find in these types of questions I get from the media is people aren't criticizing the policy, but I think underlying what everybody um, who criticized the methodology say is they don't really like the policy. 
The tax cuts we were introducing were not major tax cuts. You know, they were, would have made a fairly marginal difference, in fact, to the level of the deficit. But what they were is about showing a new direction for Britain, and that's what I wanted to do. Take another, so the gentleman in the glasses. Um, yep. Uh, Carl Dinan from ITV News. Uh, whether or not it's entirely fair to say, as the opposition parties do, that you practically single-handedly crashed the economy, it's harder to argue that you didn't trash the Conservatives' party, party's record for economic competence when you look at the polls ever since you were in office. Do you think that by reminding everyone of your policies and what happened, you're being helpful to the Prime Minister? And we'll go to the gentleman in the room in front. Yeah. Uh. Thanks. Um, Andy Bell, 5 News. Um, isn't it the case that in your broad prescription for what needs to happen next, talking about cutting taxes and restraining benefits, you have to accept that the rich will take home more money and the poor will have less? Are you comfortable if that is really your prescription for growth? And uh, a gentleman behind with the glasses. Just there, yeah. Hi, uh, Chris Storrell from City AM. Um, do you think the Bank of England should be independent? And if not, what methods would you suggest to increase the scrutiny of it? Okay, so we've got three there. So the um, evidence of the, what you say to what's happened to the polls, and he had a question about um, in, whether your policies would lead to increased inequality and then question about the Bank of England's independence. May I do, I do want to challenge this phrase, crash the economy. The, the fact is that since I left office, both mortgage rates and guilt rates have gone higher than they were at the time of the mini-budget. So I just think you are repeating a line to take from the Labour Party when you, when you say that. Um, you know, as for the Conservative polls, I'm a great believer in actually listening to what people are saying. And I go canvassing regularly in my constituency, I hear what people are saying on the doorstep. And what people are frustrated about in Britain is not you know, the ticker tape on Sky News. What they're frustrated about is costs have gone up and their income hasn't gone up. And that has been the case for some time. And that's why I believe people voted for change to change the way things worked in this country. And that's why they voted for Boris back in 2019. And I think the issue we've got in the polls is we haven't done enough to deliver that change. So I didn't support getting rid of Boris. And I think it was a mistake uh, by the Conservative Party. If you look at the polls, that's, that had a uh, major effect. But delivering change is what's important to people. When people go to an election, they think, am I better off than I was? Do, does this party have a plan for the future? That's the basis on what they vote. And I think, um, look, I'm a great fan of our free press in Britain, so I don't want to sound like I'm just media bashing. But I, I think the media could do more to analyze the real issues. You know, why is it that people's incomes haven't gone up? Why is it? Uh, that we have economic stagnation. Why is it that our energy bills are twice what they are in the US? I think that would be helpful rather than reporting everything as a Conservative Party soap opera, which I'm not particularly interested in taking part in, uh, in answer to Lucy's question. 
Um, this thing about the character of rich and poor. So take the 45p tax rate. Now, the CEBR analysis shows that over five years, we actually bring in money from getting rid of that tax rate. So everybody in Britain is better off by the fact that no, no one any longer has to pay that 45p tax rate. And I believe that whatever the headlines generated, people vote on the basis of how am I, me and my family going to do? Do we think the country is going in the right direction? And as conservatives, we have to be prepared to stand up for that because on your logic, Andy, we'd have 90% tax rate on the rich because it would be popular. It might be popular, but it's not actually going to deliver the prosperity uh, that we need as a country. On the, on the subject of the Bank of England, I said during the leadership election campaign that what I would like to see is the mandate improved. And it's certainly the case that the Bank of England have not focused enough on the money supply. And that has been an absolutely key uh, issue. But I do think uh, there is a case for looking at the governance uh, across our institutions and making sure it works. Because the fact is, the situation last autumn was the Bank of England governor was you know, in, a, in a very, very powerful position uh, with respect to me. Great. Um, gentleman on the aisle there. Yep. Thank you. Um, I'm obviously an economic and political journalist, but I'm also a former fund manager and market practitioner. Would you like to well, give us your name as well? Yeah, my name's Liam Halligan. Thank you. Um, and so I talk to lots of currency dealers, bond traders, about what's really happening in financial markets in the way many other journalists don't, I would suggest. And when I talk to them about what happened a year ago, many of them talk about the Bank of England in a way that isn't reflected in mainstream debate in this country. Not only did the Bank of England not put up interest rates as decisively as many expected just before your mini-budget, therefore putting sterling under pressure. The Bank of England also chose just a few days before your mini-budget to implement some quantitative tightening, putting bonds back into the market, putting gilt markets under pressure. And then after you'd left, and we had uh, business as usual, as you've called it, Sunak and Hunt, then the Bank of England reversed that and re-engaged in quantitative easing, so supporting the gilts market in a way which, to your successors, was politically beneficial. Could you spell out a bit more your thinking about the role of the Bank of England during this decisive period? Because this is a very live issue. This is not one for historians. We'll just take a couple more. So the gentleman in second in on the... Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Giles Wynn, former Treasury advisor. Um, you've spoken about some of the forces that you believe were against you last year, and you've spoken about um, some of the things that wouldn't have made a difference, for example, greater pitch rolling. You also spoke about how communications might have been, could have been better. Is there anything that you yourself would do differently if you had that time again? Hmm. And we'll just go to... Gemma. Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government. Um, I just wanted to um, dig a bit more into the point you're making about the OBR and the forecasts and how that affects the way that policymaking happens. 
Um, so I mean, I'm sure you're aware that the ABR forecasts are not completely static. They do take account of dynamic impacts of policy, and that's an important part of the forecasting process. And you saw that, for example, most recently in the March budget, where the changes to uh, some policies on the labour supply side, the OBR did then judge on the basis of the evidence they had. They thought that would increase labour supply, and that was factored into the forecasts. So I just wanted to understand a bit more about what your concern is about the way that that forecasting process works and how that interacted with your policies last year. So is it, because I guess the OBL look for evidence that they think policies will shift the dial on the supply side and if they see that, they factor that into the forecast. So is it that you think they were ignoring evidence that there would be important supply side impacts of those policies over the next five years? Uh, do we need better evidence base on those types of policies? Is there a need for more uh, evidence to support that? Um, or is your concern or also that the five-year forecast horizon itself is too short to really properly capture supply-side impacts? And should we extend that horizon to support better long-term supply-side policymaking? Great. So we have got three there. Uh, Liam's question about uh, the role that played by the Bank of England last year. Giles, uh, you might do differently, or you laughed. <laughs> um, and Gemma's questions about the OBR's dynamic forecasting. So just on the role of the Bank of England, I mean, it's important to recognise that I wasn't the Chancellor. I wasn't de dealing directly with the Bank of England. That was quasi quarting. So I probably got less exposure to understanding what exactly was happening. But certainly uh, on the LDIs, there clearly wasn't enough information. Uh, so the fact that we were completely blindsided by LDIs, I literally hadn't heard of what an LDI was until uh, the following Monday, which was quite a large part uh, of what happened in the market. And also the failure to rise, raise interest rates early enough, I think was a major factor. But I do think we need to look at it. And I think there needs to be honest assessment by well, by you know, the commentary out, the media, policy think tanks, about exactly what happened in the markets and why it happened. And I don't think, I think there's, there's been a lot of finger pointing, you know, particularly at me, but also, also others. But I don't think the level of analysis has been uh, particularly uh, fantastic. What would I do differently? I mean, that's a question and a half. I mean, starting preparing my premiership two years earlier would probably be the first thing <laughs> I'd do differently. The, the fact is, I didn't know it was going to happen. I thought Boris would uh, carry on being the leader. I was in on Indonesia at a G20 foreign, uh, foreign ministers meeting when it kicked off. And it clearly isn't you know, the best time to launch a major change in economic policy two years before an election and after you know, not having that time to sort of build the infrastructure and the preparation. So, but, you know, I consciously knew that at the time. And I thought, should I go for this? Because I do think we need a change in economic direction, but I knew it was going to be difficult to win the leadership election, but also implement it. Or do I not go for it? And I, I decided to go for it uh, because I thought it needed uh, to be done. Obviously, if I'd known about the LDIs, uh, we would have done things differently. If we'd known the sort of fragility uh, of the markets, we would have done things differently. Um, these, these kind of questions are quite difficult because 
you know, a lot of the way I did things was basically the way I am and my character. And you know, if you're saying, could you be a different person who's <laughs> maybe slightly more slick on the media and, you know, <laughs> well, that's just me. That's, that's what I am. So um, it's more probably about preparation, I think, and, uh, and uh, be the key thing. Uh, on the OBR, so I think both of the things that you said. So yes, they do do, or they say they do dynamic analysis. I don't think it's dynamic enough. And I think the impact of regulation is understated, and the impact of tax cuts is understated, and the benefits of public spending is overstated. So I, that would be my critique of the way the Treasury stroke OBR thinks about the world. And I also think that by removing the OBR from the Treasury, you remove the direct discussions between ministers and, and officials. And that, that creates a very sort of strange and artificial situation where sort of forecasts are exchanged back and forward. I don't think it makes the best policy making at all. I don't think it works effectively. But I also agree with you that the time horizon is far too short. And that it's embedded something that I think was already there, but, but focusing on five years. And a lot of these, cha these changes we're talking about, like really changing the housing supply, or it really you know, things like changes to pensions are very, very long term, and they're not, they're not well captured. And this goes back to now, I think Harold Wilson tried to fix his problem when he created the Department of Economic Affairs, but well, did he successfully create it? It didn't last for long for anyway. Very long. But you know, the, the Treasury is an accounting department, and it's also meant to be an economics department, and the accounting section always has the whip hand. That's... Okay, I've got one question to take from online. Take Ben here. <laughs> from BBC Newsnight. Um, I want to zero in on this question of how the Bank of England performed, but in the wake of the mini-budget. There is a view among some of your supporters that the bank effectively called time on your premiership by demanding a full reversal, by linking your policies to its support for the bond market. Do you agree with that view, or would you like to disassociate yourself from it? Okay, we'll go to Chris here. Chris Smythe from the Times. I mean, you, you've made clear that your frustration with the current government and suggested perhaps it's been captured by the anti-growth coalition, if not actively part of it. Given that, do you think it might actually be helpful for the Conservatives to have a spell in opposition so that they could have this debate about whether the, where they're going in the future, the importance of free markets? Uh, and if you don't think that, perhaps you'd uh, come back to Gitty's question about whether it might be helpful to the current Prime Minister to withdraw your resignation honours. And I'm going to take the top-ranked question online from Dr. Alexis Brassi of the University of Cambridge, who asks, the ultimate assessment of your fiscal strategy was the bond market. They can't be wrong, they just determine the price of gilts. What would you have done differently to have convinced bond traders you could have delivered? So, on the role of the Bank of England, it was, it was certainly the case that there was pressure on me and the government to reverse our, uh, our decisions on taxes. And I believe that reversal was counterproductive. So 
I believe that raising corporation tax to 25% was the wrong decision. But I was essentially forced to do that on pains of a market meltdown. Now, exactly where that was coming from uh, is harder to put a finger on, but certainly it is the case that that is the reason that uh, the policies got reversed. I mean, I said in my speech that I think a Labour government would be a disaster for Britain, that you know, Starmer and Reeves are talking about Bidenomics, uh, they're talking about you know, even more uh, public spending, uh, a so-called industrial strategy that really is just a green version of what went on in the 70s that was a complete disaster for our country. So I don't want uh, the Labour Party in government. I do want the Conservative Party, and this is not just down to the government, this is about Conservative MPs as well. I do want the Conservative Party to be the party of small government and free markets and to make that case and to not be scared of the climate change activists and the Extinction Rebellions and the, um, you know, the anti capitalists and the sort of woke diversity brigade. We can't be scared of those people. And we have to listen to what voters are actually telling us about what they want. So that, my, my plea is to the Conservative Party, we need to advocate uh, those policies. That's what I tried to change. On this question of the bond markets, uh, and I do point out again that uh, guilt rates have been higher uh, since I left office than they were for the entire time during the mini-budget. So I don't think it's, uh, it's just an issue about uh, what, we, what we sought to do. But the, these markets are very, very influenced by politics. And they're very influenced by economic institutions. So if they sense that policies don't have the support of the Conservative Party and that they can't be got through Parliament, or they sense that the Bank of England isn't happy with the policies, then that creates a problem in the markets. And I think what I didn't realize before I got into number 10 is just the sheer level of power that an organization like the OBR has. Because what happened is after the immediate uh, aftermath of the whole LDI crisis, there was then a leak by the OBR that there was a 70 billion pound hole in the budget. And that is, in essence, what forced us to reverse the decision on corporation tax. So that is a leak from a public body, which subsequently turned out to be wrong. That 70 billion was way overestimated, but that had an impact on the markets. So this is why it's, it's difficult to put a, a finger on it, but I think the basic problem we have is there is a consensus at the moment about the level of tax, the level of spending, how big the government has to be. And there is a sense of groupthink around that consensus. And trying to break that consensus, now I certainly didn't succeed last year, trying to break that consensus is difficult. But I believe unless we do break it, at least unless we do change, this country is headed for continual stagnation. That's my fear. Have you got time for one last round of questions? Sure. Yeah. OK. So there is a lady on the far side over here. Hello. I'm Sarah Gazdari, and I'm a prospective candidate for the next general election. 
Um, Liz, you talking about pressure for political, from political and economical um, organizations, and you're talking about how complicated it is for people like us to stand, the next generation, to stand in the next general election. And regardless of what um, the Conservative Party is doing now by um, putting out their local candidates, possibly instead of the good candidates, what would you advise to someone like me, who's got a life, who's been campaigning forever, for the last 10 years or more, um, within the country? Why would I do that? Why would I put myself forward at this point? Hi, sorry, can you see me? Peter Walker from the, uh, from the Guardian. Um, you ended your speech by saying the country has to acknowledge the problems it's got. Um, is it possible you've perhaps not acknowledged everything that went wrong in your time in power? One of the things that I did was that when you were in your 49 days in office and uh, after that, I spoke to a lot of your fellow Conservative MPs who, even some who agreed with your uh, economic policies, said time and time again your, your government couldn't even get the basics right. The night that precipitated the downfall of the government was a failure to whip on an opposition day motion, which is a completely bog-standard thing for a government to do. Do you think you've properly faced up to that and the kind of errors that you made, you know, beyond whatever the uh, economic policy was? I want to question this gentleman here. He's been trying very hard. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, you spoke, Liz, about raising the retirement oh, age. Oh, it's Henry Riley from LBC. Um, about raising the retirement age. I wondered on the pensions triple lock if you felt it was sustainable in the long term. And will you be going to the Conservative Party conference uh, next month? Okay, so why this lady should continue to <laughs> efforts? Um, whether you sufficiently acknowledged uh, problems of your government and the triple lock to finish us off with. Your country needs you. <laughs> That's why. I mean, I... You know, we, we, do, we do need good people in politics. and we, want, we need people to apply to be politicians. We need people who believe in things uh, to be in politics. I think that's incredibly important. So I encourage everybody uh, in this room uh, to apply to be an MP and to put themselves forward because they, w w we are in a difficult situation as a country and we, we need that talent uh, on our benches. Um, you know, on this thing about things that went wrong, I mean, I am writing a book about this, which we'll be able to read, Peter, uh, coming out next year, which will go to a blow-by-blow -blow account. But what I don't want to do is sort of point fingers and say, you know, there's been all kinds of reports, which I don't like to, to, to sort of to hear about, particularly about exactly what went on in number 10, exactly what arguments there would be. Of course... You know, it was a very difficult circumstance and lots of people made lots of mistakes. There's no doubt about that. But I will, uh, in the fullness of time, uh, explain all that uh, in my book. Um, on this question about um, pensions, so what I don't want to do is see current pensioners penalised who, who you know, are, are retired, you know, we can't leave them in the lurch. But over the longer term, we definitely need to raise the retirement age. And we also need to look at how to deliver pensions better, uh, because I don't think uh, the current system works as well as it should do. And clearly, the, the, the sustainability is a, is a huge problem. And we also need 
on the demographic front. And this is why I talked about housing and the cost of childcare. It, we need an environment that's better for families. So we don't have a demographic problem in 30 or 40 years' time. And so it's as much about making life cheaper and easier uh, for families as it is about sorting our pensions problem. And I just don't see how it's justifiable that our energy bills in the UK are twice what they are in the United States because we're insisting on a rigid interpretation of climate change legislation. That is actively making it difficult for people to you know, have a family, not to mention all the planning restrictions around uh, being able to get on the housing ladder. Yes, I will be at conference. <laughs> I will be at conference. Uh, and I'll be saying more at conference uh, as well. Well, I think we'd better, we've run over, but uh, I think there were many questions answered. So um, I think it was worth doing that. Um, thank you very much for joining Pleasure. us. It's really good to hear your reflections. <laughs>